welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Well, hey church, my name is Dave and I have the joy of serving on staff here at The Well. And I'm so glad that you've chosen to tune in with us today, whether you are uh, watching online or you've made your way into one of our uh, in-person services in Vaughn or King or Bolton, uh, whether you know, you've been a longtime member of our church or whether this is your first time connecting with church uh, ever or for the first time in a long time, wherever you find yourself in that, I just want to let you know that we are so thrilled to have the opportunity to serve you with these worship gatherings today. We're glad that you've joined us. Today, we're continuing on in uh, a teaching series called Apocalypse, Hope in the Dark. And we're continuing to dig into the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. Now, Revelation was a vision. It was a dream that God gave to a man named John, who was one of uh, Jesus's first followers. And uh, at this point in church history, this is about 2,000 years ago or so, um, at this point in church history, the governing authorities were not really very friendly to Jesus' followers. Domitian was uh, the emperor of the day and um, at the time of Revelation being written, and uh, he was using his power to repress monotheists. Basically what that meant was he was making life miserable and difficult, nearly impossible for Jews and for Christians. Uh, Roman emperors in general kind of had this obsession with being known as uh, a Lord and God themselves. They wanted their reputation to be that they were actually the savior of the world. And Domitian had actually uh, made it permissible to different governors around the Roman uh, Empire to um, bring people into, you know, to a picture of, of, the, of Caesar or to an idol, make them worship it. And if they chose not to call it Lord and God, then he made it okay for them to just be executed. And, and uh, I, I don't mean to say that lightly and laugh about it. I'm just saying this is actually how complex and how broken um, the empire was in terms of how it treated Christians. Uh, now, because of this extreme treatment of Christians in the Roman Empire, uh, there were some that were certainly persevering in their faith. They were holding true. Uh, in previous weeks in the series, we've actually talked about um, some of them that gave their lives as martyrs. Uh, they, they never stopped believing even to the point of their own execution. But because of this tension, there were other Christians um, that were kind of finding it difficult to persevere in this. And basically, in order to avoid uh, physical harm, um, avoid persecution altogether, they ended up compromising their faith and began living like other non-Christ following people around them. And what was happening is they were mixing together idol worship and Jesus worship and Caesar worship, and it was all being mixed into one. And this was particularly bad because in private, they may call themselves uh, Christians, but in the public sphere, they were participating in the very system that was actually oppressing and, and, and ultimately killing their Christian brothers and sisters. Now, I don't mean for that to sound judgmental. Put yourself in their shoes. Uh, imagine how difficult that would have been. Um, imagine living in a world, in a society where the emperors, the powers at be, are making it impossible for you to worship your God. Basically, they were saying, how do we even resist this? We can't resist this empire anymore. And so this is what was happening. They didn't want to die. And I mean, I think we can kind of understand where they were coming from. And so this is the setting, this is the backdrop behind Revelation. There's a ruthless empire, there's a persecuted church, uh, there's Christians that are compromising their faith in order to protect themselves, which is actually leading to disunity within the church and making a real mess of things. You could say that it is a totally hopeless situation. 
And yet, it's into this situation, it's into this darkness that God gives John the dream. And it's a divine and a powerful dream. And it's meant to bring hope and light into the darkness of the society and the empire that was around him. This is relevant for us too, uh, because even though we might not be experiencing this level of persecution for our faith, you know, uh, we don't have emperors threatening to execute us if we won't bow down and worship. We're still familiar with uh, brokenness in the world. Uh, We're still familiar with systemic oppression. We still see nations divided against themselves. We still see hatred in our own relationships and in the people and people around us. We still see those that are suffering and we experience suffering as well. We know and we see that there is evil, rampant evil all around us. And, and, and there is enough happening around us and enough happening in us that we could say things are looking pretty bleak. Things are are looking pretty dark. And actually, this is where the life of those early Christians and our own lives, this is where things intersect. Because what we need is we need light in the dark. We need hope. And as we look into the book of Revelation, what we see is there is an awful lot of hope that God is promising to us. And so today, as we uh, get into chapter 12, um, typically what we have is somebody in one of our sites uh, read scripture for us. Now that same thing is going to happen, but today I want to invite you to do something a little bit different. Uh, as um, we're led in scripture by Amina Wu from our Vaughn site, as she reads scripture for us, I actually want to invite you to join in and read along with her out loud, whether you're on your own or, or if you're uh, in a small group uh, or if you are um, uh, online or, or whether you're in one of our sites, read along out loud. Now, now I got to tell you this it's going to seem like this is a really strange passage to read out loud together. Um, But in the opening lines of Revelation, it says this, in Revelation chapter one, verse three, it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So I want to invite you to participate in worship by reading along now. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its twelve swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Wild, isn't it? 
I don't know about you, but as I continue to read in Revelation, it just seems like the story gets more intense and, and, and almost, I want to say, more wild, but also more exciting. This picture in Revelation 12 in particular is revealing to us that there is more going on than that which simply meets the eye. As you read through Revelation, it's like God is progressively unveiling and revealing more and more to us about what is really going on. And here in Revelation chapter 12, we come up against the subject of evil. And what we're seeing is that there certainly is evil in the world that we can see, but there's also an evil one working behind the scenes that we cannot see. And really, we see that evil goes so much deeper than we could ever imagine on our own. And it's this part of the vision that God is revealing to John and, and to us, really, how bad things are. So you might be thinking, okay, hold on. I thought you said this was supposed to be a series on hope, uh, and then you make us read a passage about Satan, and then you start talking about evil, like what gives? Fair enough, fair enough. This is going to be a sermon about Satan. But, but stick with me. I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, get us away from hope. Instead, what I'm hoping to do, and I think this is what we're going to see together, is that as we see the big picture of what's going on, we're going to find the places that God is actually revealing hope to us in every single aspect of life, including the parts where there is evil and the evil one, even where Satan is himself. God is doing something to show us where he is bringing hope into that. It seems to me that for most people, when it comes to the subject of the devil, there seems to be a bit of a spectrum of belief. On one side, um, there might be this perspective that the devil is simply non-existent. He's nothing more than a made-up uh, scare tactic meant to make people believe, uh, behave and act a certain way. Uh, you might say, uh, there is no devil. There really isn't even an evil power or force. Um, good and bad are nothing more than a construct that, um, uh, that is left to the individual to decide what their own moral code is. On, on the other side, um, you might have the perspective that the devil is a full-blown evil force, powerful and active, cunning, deceiving, full of hatred, full of destruction, capable of oppressing, capable of influencing, even capable of controlling people. If you slide a little more to the middle, and maybe this is where the majority uh, of you find yourself, is that um, there is an evil and there is a negative force at work in the world, but it certainly isn't this caricature, you know, this idea of a, of a man running around in a skin-tight red suit, right? So we know there's something going on out there and maybe there is an influence or maybe there is a power source um, behind it all, but it's not what we've been led to believe uh, in the media or anywhere else that we get that. Uh, maybe you're saying, you know, in the middle, yes, there is good and yes, there is uh, bad and these forces push up against each other and it's actually left to us to just try and balance out those forces. I can do enough good things and, and not do uh, bad things, and that's going to kind of bring equilibrium to the world. And so that's kind of uh, the middle ground. Now, whatever might come to mind to you when you do think about the devil, the devil um, in chapter 12, here in Revelation, and, and in all of the scriptures, we are taught that the devil is real and that he needs to be understood. That, that's what I'm taking away from this. In this particular passage, um, the devil is described as an, an enormous red dragon. And then he's referred to as being the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. And that he leads the whole world astray. An enormous red dragon, a serpent called the devil, called Satan. And that he leads the whole world astray. Now, 
This raises at least four really huge questions for me, and maybe you're wondering the same thing. First is, who is the devil? Secondly is, how does he lead the whole world astray? Third would be, how would God, or why would God, excuse me, why would God include such a graphic picture of Satan and evil in a book or a vision that's meant to be about hope? And lastly, what role do we play in the war against the devil and the forces of evil? So, so who is the devil? You know, we can begin to understand uh, a lot about Satan just by understanding uh, the two most common names that are used for him in scripture, both of which actually appear here. Uh, the name Satan and the title, the devil. Now he's also referred to here as that ancient serpent. Uh, I'm going to get to that in a, in a few minutes. So, so when you look at Satan, um, basically this comes from the Hebrew, it comes from the Hebrew language and it literally means opponent or accuser. That's the translation of it. The devil is the Greek transliteration of the word Satan. Uh, it, we get, from this, we get the word di- diabolos, which is actually where diabolical, right? That sense of evil comes from. And, and what this means is slanderer or false or evil talker about people. And, and I think in those definitions, we really get a picture of the ways that Satan works. Uh, you know, when, when it comes to the bigger uh, picture of scripture, scripture uh, reveals a number of different things about him. It says, uh, first of all, we're told that he is the primordial opponent of God and God's angels. Uh, that he's an opponent of, of humans who are made in God's image, which is, which is all humans. Uh, and that he hates and is the opponent of all things that are good and that are true. We're told that he's an accuser who brings up every single thing that every single person has ever done. And we're told that he is a deceitful slanderer who twists the truth and speaks horribly about everyone. Now, what's interesting about this particular passage here in Revelation is is the names that are used, uh, but it's also the two images that we get of Satan, right? In the beginning, we get that he is this enormous red dragon. But then as it continues a few verses later, it refers to him as this ancient serpent, the ancient serpent. You know, if we go all the way back to the other part, the other side of the Bible, the very beginning, Revelation, we're here at the end, Genesis, all the way in the beginning, we first meet Satan in the form of a serpent, so uh, disguised as a snake, and he's having a conversation with Eve, who is one of the first two people. So, so the way that the creation narrative, the story goes at the beginning, is that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it And we're told that he put two people, Adam and Eve, in a garden called Eden. And while they're there, they are told to be fruitful and multiply, to enjoy a relationship with one another, to take care of the land, and to live in harmony, completely trusting that God had given them everything that they needed. Actually, it says that God walked with them in the cool of the day, which is pretty remarkable. And so this is what's taking place in the garden. God had given them absolutely everything that they need until... Well, it was always everything they needed, but then Satan comes along disguised as a snake and begins to question and begins to deceive Adam and Eve and leads them astray from the promises that God had left with them. Now, it's interesting to me that Satan chose to disguise himself as a serpent, as a snake. What that does is that shows us that he absolutely is a subtle deceiver. From the very beginning, Satan has been sowing the seeds of deceit. And he does this first by appearing as a snake. Now, I am not super into 
snakes. My son is, uh, he's just obsessed with all things reptilian. Maybe you're, you are scared of snakes or you think they're gro- gross, but, but just stick with me for a second. Think about this. At first look, a snake is nothing more than an overgrown worm. Okay, it has no arms, it has no legs, it has to slither around on its belly. Everything that it moves through has to go through its face first, has to go through the mud, has to go through the dirt, all of that stuff, kind of gross. Now, they may be a little weird looking, but they're not overtly scary. Now, I, I can imagine some of you are out there saying, uh, Dave, no, snakes are scary, but, but stick with me on this. If this is Satan in the garden, and, and, it, and it is, I believe it is, um, he is this immensely powerful dragon-like beast If that's true, then why would he choose to disguise himself as a snake instead of, say, a lion or or, uh, a grizzly bear or a wolf or a hyena or something else like that? Or or why not appear in the form of that enormous and powerful dragon that we're told he is in Revelation? Well, the reason for this is because he's a deceiver. And and that's his name. I can't imagine Eve hanging out too long or having too long of a conversation uh, with a grizzly bear, right? Or, or with a big ferocious lion, let alone a giant dragon that might present itself in the garden. So he chooses to present himself as a serpent because he is a deceiver. He's powerful and yet deceptive and that he distracts people from seeing the full extent of his power. This leads us into the second question, which is how does he lead the whole world astray. Well, at one point in history, and we see this again in scripture, Satan lived in the heavenly realm. Somehow he turned against God and rebelled against God and and waged war against God. That's what's being described in this passage, right? Uh, We see that he hates the child, right? In this passage, Revelation 12, it says that the dragon hated the child. The child is Jesus, the one whom God would put on the throne to be the one who would actually bring about rescue, bring about salvation, and who would bring peace and restore and restoration back into all creation. So of course, Satan is going to hate this child. And because of this, we're told that this war breaks out in heaven, in heaven. And there's Michael, this angel, and he's fighting against Satan and all of Satan's angel, but he isn't strong enough to win this fight and he gets thrown out of heaven. It actually says he gets hurled out of heaven down to earth. And as this is happening, his big, huge tail swipes one third of the stars out of the sky with him. And those um, most commonly believed, those one third of the stars are actually referring to uh, one third of the angelic army that he took with him. They rebelled against God with him and they were thrown down to, sit, uh, thrown down to earth. And so you've got Satan now who's sent to earth and he has more than just a grudge. Instead, what he has is a will to bring destruction to all things that are God-like, all things that are, are good, all of the people of God. And he does this by tempting and deceiving people on earth and accusing people of their faults in heaven before God. So, so on earth, he confuses, he misleads, he asks skeptical questions, he presents false gods and false idols. He, makes, he tries to make everything look more beautiful to us than Jesus does. Satan tries to make everything look more true than Jesus does. And he tries to tell us that Jesus is not even for real. And, and, the, and he is, Satan is cunning, he is convincing, he is believable. And, and what's particularly dangerous about him is that, again, he is more subtle with his influence and confusion as opposed to being um, 
uh, explicitly evil, right? If he was explicit in his lies, we might be able to say, well, hold on a minute, that doesn't sound right. But instead what he does is he, he adds a little confusion here. He raises a little doubt there, a little skepticism here, a little accusation there, and it begins to add up. And so we ask, well, how exactly does he do this? Like, does he walk around and do this? Uh, does he write letters? Does he whisper things in our ears? And, and truthfully, this is kind of a harder one to answer. Um, John Wesley is a, a famous preacher from England who came over to the States um, and, and preached in the South before going back to England. He responded to this question about, how to, about Satan in a sermon that he gave in, in 1750. He said this, It's far easier to conceive than it is to express the unspeakable violence with which Satan's temptation is frequently urged on those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. There's a little bit of old English in there, I guess. But basically what he's saying is, um, it's not exactly easy, easy to explain how Satan does what he does. And yet, we have a sense that he, he actually is doing something. We have a sense that he is attacking us, that he is doing things around us, that he is influencing and being the power source behind the evil that we see, even though we might not be able to see him. Now, that being said, this week, as you continue in the daily readings, you're going to be introduced to a series of beasts. And what you're going to see in Revelation is that these beasts are powerful and they're compelling and they have influence and authority over great numbers of people. And actually that it's going to get to a point that these people are going to have so much, influ inf um, so much influence. These beasts are going to have so much authority over people that they're going to command others to worship them and people will turn and actually will worship them. And, and these beasts are all agents of Satan. Actually, Revelation reveals um, to us that these beasts have the power to kill. They have the power to destroy. They have the power to force people to do things. They're going to demand the worship of all people. And even though this is something that we're seeing in Revelation is going to take place in the future, it's not something that only takes place in the future. Throughout all of human history, this has already been happening. Throughout all of human history, there have already been different kinds of beasts that have been raised up, influential leaders, influential people who have been uh, influenced by Satan himself. They're agents of him. And what they've done is they've created systems of oppression and injustice. And this is so deeply broken, all of the fabric of society and even our world at large. This is how Satan does his work. He does this all by manipulating and turning people away from God and away from God's truth. And over and over again, what Satan does to lead people astray is he turns people from peace into division. He brings them from a place of peace, which is the way that God would have us interacting with one another and leads us into division. He takes us from truth and deceives us into lies and confusion. From love into hatred. He twists and deceives and moves people to choose, uh, to, to move rather from freedom into oppression. And, and we see this everywhere. We see it in our own lives. We see it in our own homes. We see it in the society around us. We see it in the nations around us. And, and this isn't something new. This is something Satan has been doing since the beginning of time. On top of all this, we have to understand as well that Satan is an accuser, which means that he is constantly accusing us before, before God. Satan somehow 
is able to go into the presence of God and like a prosecutor in a courtroom, make a case before God in order to try and convince God to reject us. Now listen how diabolical of this whole plan is. First, he deceives us. He raises skepticism within us. He raises doubt within, within us. Then he tempts us with all sorts of different things, trying to make us worship and give value to things that, are not, that have no value in the place of Jesus, who is the one who has the eternal value. And then, though it is possible to resist his temptations, uh, like Adam and Eve did, who fell in the garden, who, who, who um, succumbed to that temptation um, and, and, and ate a fruit, that's what he tempted them with, we too fall into temptation as well. And then what he does as an accuser, once we've succumbed to the temptation, he goes before God like a lawyer and he says, look at him or look at her. They said they love you, God. They said they worship you, God. They said that you are their God, but you're not their God. You're not their only God. They're still worshiping money. They're still worshiping their status. They're still more satisfied with the relationship with that other person than they are with you. They still want to take things into their own hand. You see how messed up that is? You see how complex this is? Do you see how evil this is? He is working the whole system and he's an accuser. And while he's saying this and making his prosecutions against us to God in heaven, at the same time, he's whispering accusations towards us going, God doesn't really love you. You know, he says he loves you when you act right, but look at how you've been living. He says he doesn't want you. You think that God wants to be your father when you're going to act like this? He, he says to us things like, um, you're the only one who's ever done something so vile. Uh, that's one of the things about sin that, that is so difficult is that we often are led to feel like we're the only one in that situation. We're the only one who's ever done that. We can't go to anybody else. We can't confess it to anybody. We definitely can't confess it to God, let alone any other person around. He makes us feel isolated and alone. He deceives, he tempts, he accuses, and he whispers. This is how Satan works in the world. He hates God, he hates you, and he hates me. And he knows that his days are numbered, which is why he fights ruthlessly and violently against us. And he wants to turn us from God, and he ultimately wants to turn everyone from God and destroy all of the world. Now, this, this has to be leading to this, this question here, is why would God include such a vivid and terrifying picture of the enemy, of Satan himself, in a letter that is meant to bring about hope. Why would he do this? With this image of Satan, with this battle scene that we see, Satan and his angels fighting against Michael and his angels, um, as we see this battle taking uh, place, what God is doing is he is showing um, John in particular, he's saying, um, this is not just an evil Roman empire that's at play. He's saying to you and me, it is not just a broken and oppressed system that you live in. God is showing us that there's actually an evil force behind all the evil that we see. He is saying Satan is the age-old dragon that is behind every single beast. And the reason we find hope in this is because it's like God is saying to us, I've been fighting this fight from the very beginning. There is nothing surprising to me about this. And also, I win. God tells us that even though we experience all of this, he has not left us. 
you got to remember that in this passage, there isn't just a powerful dragon. There's also a baby. This is a sermon about a dragon and a baby. And it's not just any baby. Scripture tells us that this is a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. This child is Jesus. This is the one who was born of a woman. This is the one who sits on God's throne and truly rules over all the nations. Jesus is the one who has waged war with Satan and his power, and he is the one who ultimately defeats the power of evil. The baby defeats the dragon. A few verses later, in verse 10, 11, and 12, we're actually shown how Jesus will defeat the devil. And if you've been tracking with us in this series, then this should not come as a surprise to you. The way that Jesus defeats the power of Satan is through Jesus' own sacrifice. It's through the cross. It's through dying. It's through his blood that is shed. The lamb who was slain defeats the enormous red dragon. It's because Jesus died on the cross that we're able to receive a life that never ends. It's it's because Jesus received judgment that we deserved for our sin and our rebellion against God that we can actually be forgiven and made clean and made innocent and set free in that heavenly courtroom. It's because Jesus came down to earth and lived like we did that we can be exchanged and actually live in the heavenly realm forever like him. And yes, it's the ultimate desire of Satan to bring destruction and death to all people, but he can't win because Jesus defeated death by dying himself and then resurrecting back to life. It's Jesus's death that actually defeats the ultimate power of the devil. Colossians, another letter that was written to another church in the New Testament, um, says it better than I ever could. It says this, when you were dead in your sins, And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Do you know what this means? This means... Satan can oppress you. Satan can distress you. Satan can accuse you. Satan can tempt you. Satan can even try to kill you, but he cannot condemn you. Satan cannot change God's mind about you. Satan will never win a court case in God's court of law. So we trust God's promise that he is fighting for us. And yet, there's still this last question for us. And that is, well, what role do we play in this fight against evil and against the evil one? You know, Jesus once said to a group of people, he says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's interesting how Jesus points to his teaching, right? Teaching is words, his words you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's Jesus's teaching. It's living a life modeled after him and it's using words that will show us how to fight in 
the battle. Just as uh, Satan primarily uses words to lie to us, to deceive us, and to lead us astray, the words of Jesus, the word of God, scripture itself, is a weapon that we can use against Satan. And so I'll say first and foremost, we need to know the truth and we need to speak the truth. Scripture is a weapon against Satan. Scripture tells us that Satan is the father of lies and that he hates the truth. That means whenever we open our copy of the scripture, God's word, and read it aloud, we are proclaiming the truth and the devil will be fearful of that. That's exactly why we read the passage together earlier uh, in this message. And that's actually what I want you to do this week. As you're working through the daily readings on our blog, or you're in your regular, whatever other reading plan you're using, or you're on social media, and you know, the verse of the day comes up, read it out loud because the devil cannot stand the truth. Actually speak it out loud. Use the name of Jesus. Satan's time is limited and he knows that. He's, fight, he's powerful, but he's fighting a losing battle. You know, scripture says in James, um, who is another church leader, he says this, humble yourself before God, resist the devil, and he will run from you. Humbling yourself before God is putting yourself in a position of saying, God, your word is the ultimate authority. Your word is actually the truth. And as you speak that out, it is like turning on a five million lumen light into a darkened room. Darkness has to escape because light goes into every area. We need to know the truth and we need to speak the truth. And Jesus says, this will set us free. We also need to live the truth. Living the truth is living a life modeled after Jesus, which is living a life that is full of self-sacrifice for others. It's a life that deliberately brings light into dark places. And I don't mean, you know, performing exorcisms or anything like that. Now, there is a place for uh, exorcism and casting out demons. There is a place for that. But for most of us, um, the way that we fight in this battle is a lot more subtle than that. To fight the forces of evil and fight Satan around us right now, it usually looks like fighting the urges within us to gossip and to slander other people. It means um, learning to love telling the truth and being honest instead of being deceptive, even if it comes with a personal cost for us. It's saying truth is more important than disguising and hiding and lies. It means um, choosing to build in accountability around us in order that we might keep ourselves from sinning and help others keep away from sinning and falling into temptation. And you know what? Those are just a couple. Those things might even sound really small. They might sound like a baby fighting a dragon. But don't you remember the whole purpose of this passage is to remind us that the baby beats the dragon? It is small acts of self-sacrifice and godliness that will push the devil and his forces away from us. There's more we can do. We can join in the fight against injustice, right? We can speak up and we can defend those around us who are being treated wrong. We can give a voice to the voiceless. This can be in a small scale, like in your home or in the schoolyard or in your classrooms or in your place of work or wherever it might be. We can work to correct the brokenness in the systems around us. And, and actually, you know what? Um, we've been talking about Operation Christmas Child. And, and I think when it comes to working in order to correct the brokenness in the world around us, Operation Christmas Child is a really good way that we can begin teaching our children in our homes how to fight back against the brokenness in the world. It is a great injustice that there are children around the world 
who are going hungry, who are going without. And we have this opportunity to simply put together a box, a shoebox that we can give to them as a generous blessing. More than that, we're actually being encouraged to write a letter that these children will receive and be able to read. You need to be putting words of truth into those letters, telling these children around the world that the way that they have been treated, the way that their country, the way that their nation is being set up is not how it was meant to be. We need to tell them that they are loved by the almighty God, the one who made them. We need to tell them that they are not forgotten, that they have a name. You need to tell them that you are praying for them and that you love them. And even though they may be thousands and thousands of miles away, God is not far away. We need to speak truth into their lives. And as we do that, we begin restructuring the way, we begin restoring the brokenness in the system that the enemy has tried to put in place. Lastly, and you need to know this, we cannot battle the enemy on our own. Without Jesus, we are powerless to fight back and to force Satan away from us. When we bring ourselves before Jesus and confess our faith to him and in him, that we believe that he is the one with the power to defeat the enemy. When we turn from our rebellion and our sin, when we ask him for his forgiveness, he moves into our lives. And like that vibrant, bright light, he forces out the darkness that is within us. You and I cannot defeat the power of darkness on our own. You and I cannot avoid Satan on our own. You and I cannot fight this battle against him on our own. We need Jesus to do this for us. And so the question that is posed to us is, do we trust that Jesus' sacrifice, that Jesus' power is the only way that we will see the power of Satan defeated in our lives? Will you confess that Jesus is the only one who sits on the heavenly throne and actually invite him to sit on the throne of your own heart? Do you, will, do you want to receive Jesus as that rescuer today? and begin following him in every part of your life. Now, now, maybe for some of you, this is a first-time decision. You're saying, yeah, I am aware that there is an evil force. I am seeing it in my own life. I do sense the ways that I've rebelled against God, and I know I want to be made right. I know I can't do this on my own. Well, maybe you're going to make this profession or this confession of faith for the first time, and in a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Uh, but maybe, like me, you're somebody who's been following Jesus for some time, and you still need to pray to Jesus to say, you know what? I have tried to fight this on my own, but I know I can't. We need to submit ourselves to Jesus again. And so I've put together a kind of a simple prayer that I think can be prayed for those of you who are kind of praying this um, profession of faith and wanting to begin following Jesus for the first time, but also that it will be uh, applicable for those of us that have been following him for a long time. So you can pray along with me, however you're comfortable. Jesus, even though I can't explain it, I know that there is an enemy who wants to destroy me. I know he's led me astray. I know he has led me into darkness. But now, I want you to bring light into the darkness. Jesus, I believe you lived and died for me. I believe you rose again and that you did this because you love me. Please forgive my sin and stop the age-old dragon from any attacks on my life. I trust you with my life today. Amen. If you prayed this, again, whether for the first time 
or, or you, you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, um, we just want to let you know that you can reach out to any one of us. You can reach out to your site pastor. Um, just get on our website uh, at the contact link there. Um, let us know. Uh, particularly if this is a first-time decision for you, we would love to just pray with you, get to know you, talk to you a little bit more about what it looks like uh, to follow Jesus and, and what it means to actually be a part of the well. We would love to have that conversation with you. Church, I, I get how this battle against Satan and evil and all of these images, even that we've seen today, uh, can seem hopeless. How it can feel like a hopeless battle. And I know that these steps that I've presented, they just seem small and simple, but I want you to hear me on this. Jesus has defeated Satan. And these small little things that we do to live a Christ-like life, to speak truth into all that is around us, that's how we declare that Satan has been defeated. It's done. Jesus has done the work. And yes, he is still at work. And yes, that there still is this in the world. But when we live this way, what we're doing is we are telling Satan that he is going to finally lose. His power is not what he thinks it is. And that's where the hope is. Yes, there is an enormous age-old dragon behind every beast. But also his days are numbered. His ultimate powers have been taken away from him. And there is the promise of God that one day Satan and his demons will be banished once and for all. They will be finished. So church, let's follow Jesus together. Let's trust Jesus together. Let's let him rule on the throne of our hearts together. And then he will continue to show us how he actually sits on the throne of the universe, how he is the true king and we can hope in him.